0: The Bible, and we're not going to read the citations, but as is our custom, we read this aloud together. So I'm going to ask you to join us, and we'll just go from one passage to the next. Ready? So find that your bulletin are up on the wall behind me. Three, two, one, go. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? and the Son of Man, that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the path of the seas." Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The house remains forever. So if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I need to say this before I begin the sermon. This sermon is rated PG-12 or 13. I'm going to talk about stuff that, uh, where, well, I'm not going to be explicit, I will be direct. And so if you have young ears that you are not ready to have in the sermon, that's okay. No concern. You may take them out to the lobby. There's, the sermon is not being played this morning out in the lobby. So I just want to give fair, fair warning to that. However, I will say, if you have a middle score, you should be talking about these things. So um, we're in a sermon series on the myths of being single. This is sermon number five out of six. Here's where we've been so far. The myths that we've talked about that are, that are kind of common in the church First, the myth that uh, being single is weird. Being single requires a special calling. Being single means no intimacy. Being single means no family. And today, being single means wasted sexuality. Being single is wasted sexuality. Now, I started this whole series with an an admission to you. I know it's weird to have a married pastor speak about issues with regard to singleness of which I, I don't have experience. And so I just want to acknowledge that and, and say, that's true, but I'm called not to preach my experience, but all of God's word. And I'm to, called to talk about things, and we have talked about things regularly that I don't experience. And that's actually what I'm called to do. So I've tried to be really careful. I've done a lot of research. I've met with a number of single people in our church and read a lot, a lot of books for this, and so I just ask you to bear with me and give me some grace in that as I talk about these things this morning. Um, you know, American movie trends tell you a great deal about American values. For example, the Judd Apatow hit machine came out a few years ago with a comedy that did really, really well in the box office called The 40-Year-Old Virgin, starring Steve Carell. And, um, the premise behind the film is right in the title, right? Is that it is comedy for someone to be forty and still a virgin, and throughout the movie, uh, Steve's char- Steve Carell's character is treated like a child, uh, treated as a as a fool. I mean, after all, he's not grown up yet, right? Uh, uh, he's treated like he's not a full person because right, he's not experienced all the things that life has to offer, right? And, and of course, the the I'll give this away, but you know this is coming. Like the, the, the happy moment of the movie is he loses his, his virginity. So he's in, right? He's in the club. Um, another movie, another example. A movie came out a few years ago called 40 Days and 40 Nights. And here's the tagline. One man is about to do the unthinkable. No sex for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, think about that, not just the concept, but the, the statement, 40 days and 40 nights, 40 days and 40, that's, that's our stuff. That came from this book, right? Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights. In fact, even during Lent, there are lots of Christians who practice self-denial to give up something for 40 days and 40 nights, like chocolate or social media or carbs or whatever it is you do, you know, right? But think about what this is saying. All those things make sense, but sex? I mean, unthinkable, right? Um, Behind the comedy of both those movies lies, lies a belief that is widespread today, which is this. Without sex, you can't really experience what it means to be a human being. You know, in this way of thinking, your sense of personhood is directly tied to your sex life. It's directly tied. To ignore this side of us, To deliberately go without, that is something subhuman. That's crazy. I mean, after all, isn't sex a basic need like food and sleep? And then to preach something like this to singles and say, to call you to biblical celibacy, I mean, that's almost violent, right? Isn't this what we hear? Isn't this the water we're swimming in? But here's my thesis this morning. It comes directly from Jesus' words there in that last passage we read here from John chapter 8, where he talks about freedom and bondage. And here's my, here's my thesis. There are things that look like bondage that are really freedom, and there are things that look like freedom that are actually bondage. And we are really mixed up. This morning, I want to ask some questions and try to seek out some answers from God's Word uh, to be specific, I want to address these questions. If God made us sexual beings, then how can it be good for single adults if they don't in any way fulfill that aspect of who they are? Or what about this one? If we are to live lives of celibacy, does that mean our sexuality actually has no role, no place in our lives? Um, doesn't this negation of sexual activity, isn't this, uh, doesn't it leave singles out? It's like, a, it's like denying a person who's a a virtuoso piano player, access ever to a keyboard? I mean, what a waste, right? I want to look at these questions. And here's my outline, if you take notes. It's, um, who am I? What is sex for? And what if my sexuality is wasted? Who am I? What is sex for? What if my sexuality is wasted? Now, we're going to start back at the beginning, Genesis 1. And if you've walked through some of our series over the years going through homosexuality, going through uh, gender, going through justice, going through race, we always seem to find ourselves back at this first page of the Bible because it is so central to understanding the answer to that question, who am I? Who am I? In in, In this question about being celibate and single, we have to ask that question, who am I? Because this has so much to do with how we define personhood today, right? Uh, As a sexual being. It's very common. This is what we talk about all the time in in our culture. Sexual orientation, gender identification. Those are behind so many conversations. And you hear these as being identity terms, the way people say things like, this is just who I am. I have always been this way. This is what I feel like I really am on the inside. Now, let's think about that for a second. These categories of identity, sexual orientation, gender identification, these are identity statements. And it's not just, we're not just talking about what a person prefers, like flavors of food or style of dress, but what a person is. And there's been a shift in our language, in the English language, even in our words on these things. So, words that used to be verbs are now nouns. Homosexual used to describe behavior. Now it's a category of personhood. Trans used to describe behavior. Now it's a category of personhood. Even the word sex has now replaced the word for gender. See, so it was a verb, it's now become a noun. And you know the joke on the forum where it says sex, is you don't write male or female, you write yes, please right? Um, because we have changed these words from verbs to nouns, and, and doing so, that's not just a semantic difference. That means something deep and profound. Um, see, what we're saying is we are oriented by our desires, and we think that's a good idea. We're defined by our desires, uh, that our specific sexual desires, what the, the what we prefer, Um, the way we want to be, that actually makes us separate species of people. And I want to ask, is that a good idea? See, I call this the fortune cookie phenomenon, that it's like every person is born with a secret message on the inside, and they alone can crack open the fortune cookie and discover who they really are. No auto numbers, just who who they are, what's the message of who you are. You figure that out, you determine that, You broadcast that to other people. That's behind all the gender identity stuff. That's behind all the sexual orientation stuff. That's because we think sex, sex, sex is what we are, is who we are. Now, stop and think about that for a moment. Defined by desires. Defined by desires. Is that something we really want? There are other labels like that like alcoholic, like addict, that are also defined by desires, that we actually have to have interventions with people to help them own. And yet only sexuality is something that people are like, oh, defined by desires, that's a great idea. See, what's the big deal, you may ask? Now, that's a good question. See, what simply seems to be like semantic change? No, it's just words, right? no, no, no has actually challenged, changed the way we look at people and understand self. It changes the way we view personhood. Sexual orientation, um, gender identity, sex is a category like this. Um, it's, it's created a supplanted, a biblical term for who you are with one that's a fictional term. So Genesis 1, 26 and 27. This is what we just read a moment ago. It looks at personhood and answers the question, who am I? with such a different answer than the world and with one that's on a collision course with what God says, God and the world. This is the definitive statement in all religions, the highest view of humanity out there. We even heard these words in in, in Psalm 8. Remember, we read these and actually, the words there are actually gender neutral for man there, um, human. says this, God has made you He has made you a little lower than the heavenly beings. He has crowned you with glory and honor. You, sitting in this room, male and female, you are the pinnacle of creation. You are made in the image of God. That is the definitive statement. See, what does this have to do with the single life? I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked this question. Because categories used to define image bearers of the living God, those really matter. You are not what you like. You are what God is like. You are not what you like, what you prefer, what you desire. You are made according to what God says He is like. You are in His image, in His likeness, in true holiness and righteousness. So, look, this means we are Imago Dei, image of God, not Imago Doggy, an animal defined by animal desires. We're human beings. Male and female, given dignity by the fact that we are made in his image. Made in his image. Um, And because he made us, God gets to say how we understand and use these bodies that he has made for us. See, I mean, this is true. People agree with this, even if they don't understand the theology. They're like, sex has a glory to it. There's something transcendent about it. That's why humans make such a big deal about it, right? I mean, even in sexual immorality, there's something that people can say is glorious. Something that points to something beyond just a human experience. And and this is is why one of the most pervasive lies in our culture is that sex is life. And on the flip side, the other lie is no sex is tragic. No sex is tragic. (coughs) But that answer, our culture's answer to the question, who am I? it degrades. It shrinks. It defaces your personhood, your dignity. You're being called image bearer of the Most High God. To adopt the culture's terms on these things is actually to turn you into a bag full of desires and a personhood self-identification mess. Um, In the comedy Zoolander, changing direction here, uh, Ben Stiller's character is a supermodel who's not very intelligent, okay? And so he makes a lot of money and decides at the end of the film, this is not a <laughs> spoiler, he's, he's going to give this money to create a literacy center. And it's going to be called the Derek Zoolander Center for Kids Who Can't Read Good, right? <laughs> and, and so somebody brings out to him a scale model, scale architectural model, you know, to see what the Derek Zoolander Center literacy center for kids who can't read good. it's going to look like. And this is what he says. He says, what is that? A center for ants? How can we expect to teach children to learn how to read if they can't fit inside the building? I mean, I don't want to hear your excuses. That building has to be at least three times bigger than this. (laughs) Now, see what Derek Zunlander is doing is what our culture is doing. Shrinking down. This is so foundational that you understand this. When you shrink down the answer to who am I as sexual being defined by desires, that answer seems great. It seems to be liberating, free from a God who tells me what to do. I mean, after all, isn't that what we hear all the time? It's my body. Nobody can tell me what to do with it. But in that is a hidden poison because it destroys the Imago Dei. It downgrades you. What looks like freedom is bondage. It is destructive. So look, when our culture and your friends say things like this, like um, they elevate sexual desire to a physical need, like sleep, like food, we have an answer for that, right? You could say, my fundamental identity is not sexual. It's image bearer. That is the highest compliment that you can say. Anything else that you say downgrades and defaces the way God's made you. It shrinks it. And as, that's the tragedy. That's the tragedy. We are not just bodies, we are embodied souls. And that is glorious. Who am I? Image bearer. What is sex for? Point two. You now, if you listen closely to how we talk about sex, that question seems out of order, right? What do you mean, what is sex for? What do you mean, who is sex for? I mean, the way we answer that is me, myself, I. That's what we naturally think. So so the question, what is sex for, seems weird. So a little real talk this morning. You know the phrase getting some or getting any, right? So like uh, a little raw, but let me say this. Uh, When someone's uptight, what do people say behind their back? Oh, come on. I'm the only person who's ever heard this before. Someone's stressed out. What, are they, what do people say behind, behind their back? Oh, she's not getting any. He just needs to get laid, right? And listen to that language because it implies that sex is about getting. It's about getting. Uh, in her book, Revelations of a Single Woman, Connolly Gilliam writes this. She says, what do I do with my sexual desire? What do I do with the fact that I'm not getting any? And her answer is profound. It is so countercultural. She says that the getting any perspective is backwards. Here's what she writes What ge- keeps a person alive as a sexual being is, is giving of himself or herself. It's not what a person is not getting that matters, but what a person is giving that matters. Because in the Bible, sex is about giving, it's not about getting. It's not what a person is not getting that matters, but in God's calculus, right? It's about what giving that matters. This is what we read here in 1 Corinthians 7. Now, I apologize, because we read this from the ESV, and I just am like, commentators, y'all are killing me on this uh, translation of this because conjugal rights, did you hear that (laughs) we read that? Like, I'm like, that is so cold. Like, that is not helpful to any of us here. So I want to uh, read a paraphrase by Eugene Peterson in the message. And this sounds like it could have been written yesterday. It is so spot on and amazing. And uh, I just want you to hear this read a different way. This is what the Apostle Paul says. Sex drives are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them and provide for a balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. That's first century, y'all. The marriage bed must be a place of mutuality. The husband seeking to satisfy his wife. The wife seeking to satisfy her husband. Marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights. Marriage is a deser- decision to serve the other, whether in bed or out of bed. This says at least three things. Sex is, such, is so powerful that God designed it for one and only one context. A marriage between a husband and a wife before God for life. That's what he designed it for. And you can find other people who will tell you other things, but that's what the Bible teaches. Second, sex is not not just for making babies. God designed it to be pleasurable. And, you know, that shouldn't be that controversial statement. But if you grew up in a Christian youth group, you might not have heard that before, right? God loves pleasure. Jesus went to parties. There's a book of erotic love poetry in the Bible. God loves sex as pleasurable. And finally, sex in marriage is a decision to serve the other, not to get some. Now, that is such good news. That is not bondage. God's instructions here are actually for our freedom and for our joy and for our good. I know how that sounds. When I was a kid, we used to play Opposite Day. I don't know if you all ever played this. Opposite Day in my household is we would use this like language and you say left, you mean right, and you say up, you mean down, and you say false, and it means true. And it sounds like I'm up here talking Opposite Day language to say this kind of stuff in this culture. But what looks like bondage, God's design for sexuality is actually freedom. There's restrictions on that. And what looks like freedom in an anything-goes culture is actually bondage. Um, To be more specific, I want to show you there are two quicksand traps that we are falling into, married or single, in our culture with regard to this issue of what is sex for. Um, First is masturbation. In 1992, when I was a college student, the series Seinfeld had its infamous uh, masturbation episode. And this was shocking for a couple of reasons. It was shocking, first, that this, what it was a private, kind of shameful act, is now on public, like primetime TV, and we're laughing at it. And second, that there's a, a woman character who talks about her participation in this. And it was like crazy at the time. Now it's kind of tame if you watch the episode, right? It's, it's not that uh, that. Doesn't seem like a big deal. Um, But once a source of personal shame, see, masturbation is now in our culture viewed as a healthy sexual outlet, especially for singles. And this is this has made its way into the church. There's even a very famous Christian psychologist who has blessed this and, like, hey, this is just fine. But I'm going to ask this question: is that right? Is that true? Is it a sin? I'll be very honest. There's no like proof text verse in the Bible where it's like, don't masturbate. That's not anywhere in the Bible. Uh, it doesn't say don't touch yourself, right? Um, but a robust understanding of God's design for sexuality plus an understanding of discipleship means that really there's no room for this as a follower of Christ. And why would I say that? Masturbation is, at its like, easiest definition, sex with yourself. And there are two main rocks, bedrocks of the Christian theology of sexuality I've just gone over that that make masturbation out of bounds. Because of our image bearing, Right, sexuality is always reserved for relationship. It's relational. It's reserved for marriage because it's inherently relational. It's designed to cultivate deep intimacy between two people. It is not just for self. And then in, second, in 1 Corinthians 7, we just, we just read, see, Paul's making the point that actually sex is for other-serving pleasure, other-serving sacrifice. As a solitary activity, by definition, it's not rooted in a relationship. It's not building intimacy with anyone. It's about self. See, masturbation says, why should I wait or why should I work if I can have this pleasure right now alone? See, that attitude is also counter to Jesus' call of discipleship, which tells us there are, there, in parts of your life, you need to come and die. You, you put to death things. See, God designed our sexuality to be like every area of our life, where we turn away from selfish desires and turn toward Him and turn toward other people in service. Masturbation reinforces the natural self focused bent of our hearts that are already there all the time. And and if the Lord provides a spouse, a history of solo sex makes it really, really difficult to approach lovemaking with another person in anything but selfish ways. So, can I be so bold to say this? Sexual sin in this area, masturbation, is a gender-neutral issue. This isn't just a guy thing. Um, you know, Kathy Keller, wife of Tim Keller, you know, uh, for Presbyterians, our father who art in Manhattan, Tim Keller. <laughs> um, his wife, Kathy, who is the brains behind all his research. I mean, she is, she is sharp as a tack. And she came out several years ago in a, in a group like this, and talked about how she had been a, had a, an addiction to masturbation when she was in her younger years and how she had repented of that. And, and like, that was profound because the church needs to talk about this as a gender neutral issue for men and women. <clears throat> Let me be very clear. Um, and I, I just I, I want you to hear uh, the empathy in this. We need to be to say this, you know. It it is really difficult to live with unsatisfied sexual desires. And I don't want to make that sound easy. Uh, We should have incredible compassion for singles who are trying to please the Lord and be celibate in this area of their life and and, and please Him and live for Him. Many secular therapists and even Christian therapists will suggest that masturbation is fine because it's a form of self-soothing and even stress release. And I'm just saying that's wrong. That is not biblical. You can find people who would tell you that but that is not biblical. Here's the crux of the issue. God calls Himself the God of all comfort. That's in 2 Corinthians 1. He wants to meet you in the places of your sadness. He wants to meet you in the places of your loneliness. He wants to meet you in the places of your frustration. He promises to satisfy you, Psalm 103, with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Jesus promised, He even nicks, nicknames the Holy Spirit the Comforter. God longs to draw near to us and give us comfort. And there's, it's, it's dangerous when we turn elsewhere to satisfy and soothe the ache of our soul. Jonah 2 tells us this. Um, those who turn to cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. There's a scene in Inside Out where Bing Bong is reading a sign, right? And he's like, D-A-N-G-E-R. That's his shortcut. (laughs) And I think this is true in this case. Because when we embrace false and fleeting comforts outside what God has told us, what we're going to find is an empty cistern. You know, does, does masturbation ever invite you to praise, to fellowship, to gratitude? In the places of our temptation, in the places of our deep frustration, can we find ways to turn away from empty cisterns and even other activities that help us move toward God in gratitude, move toward Him in that? Second quicksand, um, pornography. The statistics are on pornography use in our country are just incredible. They're just incredible. 30% of all data transferred across the internet is pornography. The porn industry's annual revenue is more than the NFL and NBA and Major League Baseball combined. It's also more than the revenue of ABC, CBS, and NBC combined. One of the larger porn video porn sites streams six times the bandwidth of Hulu. Porn sites get more visitors than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. And this is not just a male thing. survey came out this year. 9,000 American women surveyed. 31% of women that were surveyed say they look at porn once a week. Another 30% said once a month. Most of that without a partner, just alone. Again, what is sex for? Sex in Scripture is for other-serving pleasure, Uh, not self. Not self-pleasure, not self-soothing, not for entertainment. And one of the biggest lies of pornography is, and I heard this over and over again, is like, oh, it doesn't hurt anybody. That is drinking poison. Uh, It completely ignores how pornography impacts our hearts the ways we impact, we, we interact with other people, the way that porn teaches us to uh, mentally undress another person. It, it, it teaches us to view bodies as things. Uh, it destroys and degrades your soul. If you bring this into your marriage, it will destroy your marriage. You cannot use pornography in your bedroom. That will not help your sex life. That's drinking poison. Um, and porn use is tied to the largest wave of erectile dysfunction ever seen in our country, and guess who it's among? Millennials. You know, this doesn't even mention the justice issues. That the people on the screen are image bearers. That many, if not most of them, are stuck in sex trafficking and sexual slavery. That's just, that's, that's not even like me hyperbole. That is like established fact. We're looking at image bearers of the Most High God, somebody's sister, somebody's daughter, somebody's son, somebody's brother, and using them. This is poison, and it's killing us. And I just want to say this. If you need help in this, our church wants to help, not shame you, not embarrass you, but to come alongside you there is a way out from this, and it is a hard road. I'm not going to make that like, seem like, oh, no big deal. That is a hard road. But you can be free. You do not have to be stuck in these patterns. Your marriage doesn't need to be stuck with this poison in it. We want to help you. This is not what God has in- intended for you. We have a slide up here. We have a couple of, webs- of uh, email addresses that we have made known to our congregation. Care for men at ctkrawley.org and careforwomen at ctkrawley.org. And these are confidential email addresses. So if you email and say, I need some help in this area, someone will follow up with you. I don't know how, It won't be within the hour, but it won't be a week. It will be in a couple days. And that will be, for men, one of our elders will follow up with you. If you're a woman, one of the commissioned women will follow up with you. And we want to help you. We want to help um, our congregation to be free of this. This is killing us. One of the things that I find in our church that most stifles our worship is sexual sin is killing us so I know where this what some of you are feeling right now like what about me? I mean where does this leave me? Where does this leave singles with sex organs? you know Jeff, you are holding out celibacy, no porn, no masturbation uh, No sex as the only option. And that that, how am I supposed to live like this? I mean, what if my sexuality is unused in this life? Is it wasted? Here's my answer for you. No, it is not wasted. It is not wasted. Remember, see, what looks like freedom is bondage. When I say celibacy, some people are like, they think wasted sexuality. But Haven't we just talked about a lot of wasted sexuality? We talked about porn and masturbation. Isn't that wasted sexuality? And actually, sexuality that's destroying us? I mean, don't you have enough personal data from your own history, history of friends, that you could write an encyclopedia on how destructive sex can be? Don't you have that data? So let's reverse the the, the formula. What if what looks like bondage is actually freedom. What if if outside of marriage celibacy was actually freedom? I mean, how could that be? How could that be? Let me just remind you of where we've been in the series. We started off talking about marriage in this life. It's temporary. It's not ultimate. It will be absent in the age to come. Some of you who are married, even in this room, will not be married in the next few years. And It is not essential. That's reflected actually in the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came as a single celibate male. He knew all of the temptations that we face. Um, And and yet here's Jesus who comes as a single celibate male, the most fully realized human being who ever walked the planet, most fully integrated, most emotionally alive person who's ever lived. And he comes as a single man and calls himself John chapter 2, the bridegroom, because his sexuality was telling a story. It was telling a story, I'm the groom, these people are my bride. This is what the marriage is all about. It's meant to tell that story. And so being single right now actually bears witness to that reality. Being single in this present moment, celibate and single, says to your own heart. What I have in Jesus is so certain in what's to come and it's so good that I'm okay being satisfied in Him. That's what that means. It's a way of declaring to a world that's obsessed with sexuality and romance that though those things are good, even better, and and, and what is ultimate is what you actually already have in Jesus Christ right now. See, single Christians who are celibate and married Christians faithful in their marriages actually deploy their sexuality in different ways to tell the same story. We're telling this story. If marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, then single celibacy shows us the sufficiency of the gospel. Let me say that again because nobody's going to say this to you. This is crazy talk. If marriage shows you if it shows you the shape of the gospel, we are made for him. Then Celibate sexuality shows you the sufficiency of the gospel. He is all you need. This is what you're you're meant to find your soul's delight in. See, this is another reason why we need single people in our church. Not as a supposedly endless source of free babysitting, but as walking billboards. As walking billboards. As signposts. Showing off a greater reality. That there is something greater than... What's right in front of me right now in this life? Our sexual feelings remind us that what we forego in a temporary, temporary way in this life, we will enjoy in fullness in the new creation which is to come. So that means your body, you know, we talk about body language. Your body has a language. It is speaking to you all the time. There is an internal GPS that your body is using and is talking to you. It is saying like there is a, it's a homing device for, for God. Because it says that's what you're designed for. That's what you're made for. And this is the good news. This is powerful, and it's liberating, and it's not bondage. It means my sexual feelings do not need to be met for their purpose to be fulfilled. It's never wasted. My sexual feelings don't need to be met in order for their purpose to be fulfilled. Your sexual feelings, your frustration is telling you there is an ultimate rest in God. And then, you know, we look at this and we're like, I'm so frustrated. Well, And sexual sin seems like no big deal, but it feels like an answer to that restlessness. But it's just a shortcut. D-A-N-G-E-R. It's just a shortcut. Like all of sin's pleasures, it's only temporary and fleeting. See, celibacy isn't a waste of sexuality. It's a way of fulfilling it. It's a way of fulfilling it. It's allowing our sexual feelings, our frustration, to point us to a greater reality. It's allowing our sexual feelings to point us to the reality of the gospel. We will never ultimately make sense of this unless we know what sex is for and who we are. So look, if you are here this morning and you're celibate, single, and you're trying to honor the Lord in this area of your life, I know you feel like a unicorn. I know you feel like just a weirdo. And and people people will give you unicorn-like comments like, Oh, I've never met one of you, your kind, before. Like, that is not comforting, right? That, I just feel weird. Um, but what happens when you get a lot of unicorns together in the same room? Okay, the punchline of that is not a herd of horny horses. <laughs> Come on. Oh, that's good right there. Some of you all get that later. Okay. Rather. What happens when you get a bunch of unicorns together? They begin to feel normal. Oh, you're a unicorn too. What if our church was a place where unicorns felt normal? What if our church was a place where we unmasked the lies? We said, it's better. It, it, what we have is better. What, what if we made honoring Jesus with our sexual lives normal? What if we made fleeing sexual immorality and porn and masturbation normal? What if we made being an image bearer the compliment that it really is? I mean, what if, what if we put sex in its place, like in its context, but also as, yes, in marriage, but also as a signpost? And we allowed it to tell the story that it tells. What if, what if we rejected bondage for freedom? What if we found freedom as a church and the areas where God says there really is freedom. I mean, do we want to be defined by our desires? Or do we want to be defined by the desires our God has for us? That's life. That's where life is found. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I know that these are very difficult words and probably very painful words for people in this room. And so, Father, I pray you who are the God of all comfort would lift up the hearts that feel condemned right now or angry or frustrated or shamed. Father, we thank you that, Lord, your grace leads us to repentance. And that, Lord, um, you always look upon us who are in Christ as bearing wearing his robes as righteous in you. It gives us freedom to actually repent and come to you. Throw off things that are not life. Throw off things that are bondage. Lord, I pray for those who are lonely this morning, that you, you would draw near to them. I pray for those who are frustrated this morning, that you would comfort them. Lord, I pray that you would, Lord, afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm very aware of those words um, that I just prayed, that this, this sermon may...